Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Today, we're excited to welcome Jan Knowles, Certified Consulting Meteorologist and Adjunct Professor at San Jose State University. He has spent decades forecasting and studying weather across the United States, especially in California, and he prides himself on being able to predict the unpredictable. He served as lead forecaster at the National Weather Service in the Bay Area for more than 24 years and in total has more than 40 years of experience as an operational and forensic meteorologist, serving as an expert witness in hundreds of cases. Jan has dedicated much of his career to becoming an expert on all things El Nino and La Nina. And he has also been a pioneer researcher studying and raising awareness to prevent hot car deaths involving children. We've got a great discussion planned with Jan today, so let's get started. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Jan, thank you for joining us. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, you're, you're, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, and I've uh, enjoyed talking to you over the years, talking to you on the um, sort of previous iterations of Weather Geeks. And so uh, I, I want to dive right in. But before we kind of talk about who you are and your background, I mentioned something in the intro about forensic meteorologists. I think people know what an operational National Weather Service meteorologist is. What's a forensic meteorologist? So a uh, forensic meteorologist, well, forensic means f- for the law. And so I do. Uh, expert witness work, basically reconstructing past weather events for typically some sort of litigation. It's usually civil litigation. It's occasionally criminal litigation. And sometimes it's even litigation that's related to the heat stroke deaths that we're going to be talking talking to today. Sure. So basically simplified, or as my wife says, it's CSI weather. You know, I'm, putting to, I'm reconstructing a past weather event. Yeah, and so that, and I think many people, particularly some people that may be listening that want to go into meteorology, don't realize that there there's quite a bit of activity in in that. You get calls from lawyers and from all kinds of people that want you to kind of go back and reconstruct the traffic accident on the interstate. Or I remember one time I got a call uh, uh, from some people up in Tennessee. They wanted to reconstruct weather associated with the Southern Appalachian wildfires two years ago. So there's a lot of activity in this area. Yeah, and actually the, the, the wildfire issue is certainly one that is uh, forefront here in California, and uh, I'm going to be doing some work for several years related to those. Yeah, I can imagine. And you are a certified consulting meteorologist. Why don't you talk about what that means to be a certified consulting meteorologist, which I believe is issued by the American Meteorological Society? Sure. The, uh, the CCM program, for, uh, Certified Consulting Meteorologist, is from the American Meteorological Society. And it's, you know, what one of the highest, I think, levels that you can obtain as a professional meteorologist, there is um, a in-depth written exam, there's an oral exam, uh, there's a background of having worked as a professional meteorologist for five years. So um, takes quite a bit to get there, but it kind of sets you apart from uh, from some of the other uh, categories. Yeah. And you've been uh, a, a 
adjunct professor at San Jose University, San Jose State, I should say. Uh, You founded the Golden Gate Weather Services, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Been a CCM since 1998, uh, 40 years as a forecaster. Uh, If you're listening, Jan knows this stuff. He's a a meteorologist, meteorologist. Uh, Those of us that are in this field look up to people like Jan because he knows what he's talking about. So um, tell us about your experience. Uh, how How did you get into meteorology? your academic career? How'd you end up at the Weather Service and why did you leave it? Sure. Well, you know, it was almost accidental. Uh, I I had always been sort of a math and physics guy and had planned originally uh, coming out of high school to to teach high school physics. Um, That transitioned for a short time into uh, becoming an astronomy major. Um, Realized that there was not a, a lot of future in that. And I was transferring to the University of California at Davis. And I literally saw a flyer at the community college that I was at for the atmospheric science program there. And went up there, talked to some of the people in the department and said, you know, this is this is really interesting, especially since unlike a lot of meteorologists, I did not grow up as a weather geek. But, uh, you know, it oh, you was, did not. I, I, I did not. I, oh, wow. Uh, but I was always into, always interested in science and, you know, meteorology sort of, you know, played into some of that. But it was not I was not keeping, you know, weather records since kindergarten either. And so. Got into the atmospheric science program and um, loved uh, loved everything about the weather. I was fortunate in that I, um, between my junior and senior year, uh, having been a recent Vietnam veteran, I qualified f- to become a uh, summer intern for the National Weather Service in Sacramento. And um, that started my weather service career. I actually went on leave without pay during my senior year. Um, a week after I graduated in 1974, I started work for the National Weather Service in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, worked worked there uh, in a couple of different Bay Area offices, but still in the same locale for 24 years. Wow. What's, what's the biggest forecast challenge for someone working in the Bay Area? You know, it, everyone goes, well, it's California. It's really easy. But the hard part are the subtleties. It's things like what time is the fog going to burn off at San Francisco Airport? Right. Makes a makes a, a big difference whether you have no delays or you have ninety minute delays on a regular basis if the fog doesn't doesn't burn off. Or it's we, we have a lot of microclimates in the Bay Area. San Jose gets on the average fifteen inches of rain a year. Um, Ten miles away, up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, they get forty-five inches of rain a year. Where is that? You know that heavy rain line going to begin or end? So lots, lots of subtle, subtle challenges. And uh, no, for for the viewers, I'm sorry, the listeners, I'm I'm still stuck in uh, Weather Geeks TV mode. Sometimes for the listeners, what do you mean by a microclimate, and why why is it that California has these microclimates? Is it because of the cold currents there off the shore, or the mountains to the east, uh, or a combination of all of those? It it, it is. A combination. It's a combination of the fairly severe um, topologic changes around the Bay Area. You go from sea level. You go. We have some mountain ranges uh, within a few miles of the ocean that are, are three thousand feet uh, high. We only have a limited number of passages for air from the coast on into the interior of San Francisco Bay, and then on into the Central Valley. So you can have from one side of San Francisco to the other on a, on a summer day like it is today, uh, you can end up with a, a 
and that's only seven miles across town, uh, 10 degree temperature change. You go on inland uh, another 30 miles or so, and you can increase by 30 or 40 degrees to be up into the 90s on a 60 degree day. Wow. Now, does, does the, the, these microclimates, I know California has been in the news quite a bit with the wildfires this year. Uh, is there anything specific about these microclimates that either uh, amplify or enhance or, or at least modify the fire fire season out there? Uh, n- not as much the microclimates other than where, you know, the uh, our submarine layer, how far that extends inland can certainly impact, you know, the uh, what the uh, the humidities and temperatures are in, in the nearby wildlands. And that that's probably is the bigger issue in California is where we are abutting urban areas up against the wildlands. And so fires, which in, in some past years would not have been as disastrous, are now burning into populated areas. Ah, that, that makes sense. So you, you moved on from the National Weather Service, as you talked about. And at that point, did you establish your um, your your company, um, Golden Gate Weather Services, and start doing forensics? Is that at the point after your retirement? or? Well, th- the National Weather Service moved from the Central Bay Area down to the Monterey Bay Area. And um, that allowed me at the end of 1997 to take an early retirement and having just gotten my CCM a few years earlier, um, I parlayed that into uh, becoming a consulting meteorologist and doing forensic meteorology and getting involved in in other projects, teaching part-time at San Jose and San Francisco State Universities, uh, doing work on El Nino. And then in 2001, I... um, became involved in the uh, looking into how hot cars get and and heat stroke. Yeah, no, we're going to dive into all of those later in the podcast. Uh, so make sure you stick around because um, Jan's just one of the top experts in the world on El Nino, La Nina, and also this heat deaths in cars. So I'm going to dive right into that. I want to stay with your forensics for one second, though, because I think it's an area that people may not be as familiar with, just the casual listener in our field. Uh, is, is there any particular that, that you could talk about, obviously? Is there anything that sticks out in your mind that's particularly interesting or, or strange in that forensic world? over the last several years? Well, I think one of the big things is that each case is different, you know, and so it's having lots of variety, lots of different challenges, whether it's looking at a flooding case, how much rain it was, how unusual that rain event was, um, looking at a traffic accident, uh, what sort of ponding there was on the roadway or how strong the winds were that blew the tree across the across the highway and um, cars crashed into it, or looking at the weather related to some of the uh, the wildfires. Yeah. Um, what, how strong were they? How unusual were they? What impacts did they have upon uh, the infrastructure that that may have been a contributing factor? Right. No, that's very interesting. And yeah, if you're interested in the CCM program, uh, either as a meteorologist or just want to know more about it, um, the American Meteorological Society, which is the largest uh, weather-related professional society in the United States, runs that program and they've, they've got a good website that'll talk all about it. Now, you mentioned that you got into El Nino or ENSO research. Uh, El Nino Southern Oscillation is what ENSO stands for. So I want to kind of pivot our discussion there now. And by the way, Jan uh, runs a really nice website, um, HDTP 
colon backslash backslash ggweather.com. And there are various things that you can get to from that website uh, as well. I want to do a little meteorology and climate 101 before we really get into the discussion. So first of all, what how would you describe to the layman or if you were talking to the governor of California, what El Nino or the ENSO is? So, um, and so, as you said, El Nino Southern Oscillation is sort of the, the overarching term that we use for both El Nino events and La Nina events. And those are changes, periodic changes in the eastern tropical Pacific, where we have either an increase or a decrease above or below normal of the sea surface temperatures. There's coupling with that with other parts of the atmosphere, but that's the main criteria that that is looked at. As those warm or cool, they affect the patterns, the jet stream and the downstream um, weather patterns on on into a, a particular year. Now, it's always interesting to note, and right now there is a um, fairly good likelihood, I think NOAA currently has a 70% chance of an, uh, a weak to moderate El Nino um, developing later on this winter, but there's a lot, there's a large range of solutions that that, that, that could mean. It doesn't, El Nino, unlike it was I think originally thought that means a wet year for California because some of the when El Nino was just becoming a a popular item in the meteorological and, and the public community, we'd had a couple of very wet El Ninos, and that sort of set the mind the the mindset of people as far as what El Nino means. Um, though there we have had. Strong El Ninos that have been very wet and some that are that have been drier than normal. So lots of variation is trying to keep track of those those events and seeing how those in context with the other what I call the alphabet soup of other indices like the <laughs> Pacific Decadal Oscillation and then Julian Oscillations, how those impact just that warming in the eastern tropical Pacific. Right. And yeah, and, and I know that the, the point you're really getting at is that all ENSO events are not created equally. They they have variability, as many climate signals tend to do. And you did mention the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the, that's called the PDO. But there there is an alphabet soup out there. There's the Arctic Oscillation, the North Atlantic Oscillation, the NAO, the AO. Then you've got the Madden-Julian Oscillation, the MJO. And this just really illustrates the challenges, climatologists, of trying to assess climate climate variability and then sort of the other changes on top of that natural variability as well that may be anthropogenically related. Now, you mentioned that there is a chance for an El Nino setting in uh, uh, later in the year, perhaps in the next year. The last time I spoke to you, and I think that was on the TV version of Weather Geeks, uh, everyone was gearing up for the strong, I think the terminology by one colleague of ours, and I think we both know um, it was the Godzilla El Nino that was uh, <laughs> anticipated for fall 2015. Um you know, did the hope of that Godzilla El Nino or I guess the description of it in terms of its relief from the drought, did, did it end up being the big drought reliever that we thought it would be? What are your thoughts there? No, it actually it actually did not. For most parts of California were normal or in some cases below normal. It sort of, at least in my mind, has become the poster child for, you know, all El Ninos are, are not the same, even if it, they're in that very strong category where there's only been... Uh, four of those going back to 1950. So they're a relatively rare event. 
very strong warming in the eastern tropical Pacific. But there were some other things going on. The some of that alphabet soup we've been talking about that that really minimize its its impact upon uh, West Coast rainfall. Now, you know. I saw a paper in the scientific literature. I think it was even by some colleagues here in Georgia at Georgia Tech. And they were talking about something called a Modokai, or I hope I'm saying it correctly, El Nino. Are you familiar with that? Yes. I, I've i heard it as as, as Modaki. Modaki. Yeah. I, I don't know that I was pronouncing it correctly. So thank you for clarifying for and, me. But what is it? Well, that is when the warming, instead of being in the, in the eastern central um, Pacific uh, along the equator, it's farther to the west. It's close, stretching out toward the international dateline. So by moving that center of warming, it it impacts the uh, what 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 the downstream effects are are from a uh, uh, an El Nino event. And we're back on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Jan Knoll, All Things Meteorology. He's a certified consulting meteorologist and adjunct professor at San Jose State University, spent decades in the National Weather Service as a lead forecaster. And we're talking about El Nino, La Nina, and all types of interesting things. So um, you mentioned El Nino and La Nina as well. And you've been talking about these, what we call teleconnections, where you get the El Nino or the warming in the eastern central Pacific, and that impacts weather in California or in Georgia or in Europe. How does that happen? Explain to the Weather Geeks listeners how this warm pool of water affects weather patterns around the world. The primary influence is where what it does to the the steering of the of the jet stream the uh, the and the connections between the equator and the um, the jet both in the polar jet and the, and the and the subtropical jet and as that warm pool which is typically in the in the western pacific shifts east it shifts that pattern so instead of for example having a predominant uh, Ridge of high pressure in the west in the uh, in the winter time, uh, you have more occurrences of troughs, and especially along that subtropical jet, along the southern tier of the United States. And if you look at the maps of a typical El Nino, something that is something t- should be taken with a grain of salt, you you will often see those su- those southern states having above normal rainfall on average in the um, in El Nino years. Absolutely. We're in the sort of ramp up period of the Atlantic hurricane season. And as we are sort of seeing a somewhat quiet Atlantic season, even as we're taping today, uh, Hurricane Lane is just south of the Hawaiian Islands. And so many meteorologists are keeping an eye on that. But Explain to the listeners why, for example, NOAA, one of the reasons NOAA gave for a potentially continued quiet Atlantic season, uh, in addition to the abnormally cold waters there in the Atlantic, is that they're expecting the onset of El Nino. How are those two related? Sure. What what are the the things that really diminishes the occurrence and the development of hurricanes uh, in the Atlantic is is strong wind shear. It doesn't allow them to, to develop and become maybe storms at all or minimizes the storms that, that, that do form. Uh, as you mentioned, there has been cold, colder than normal water uh, throughout this summer, so that has, has lessened the, uh, the likelihood. And now as we're starting to see uh, 
the warming in the eastern tropical Pacific with the probable onset of El Nino, uh, that shear, that shift in jet streams that I've talked to, you're getting more shear, stronger jet across the, across the Atlantic and Caribbean basins. And that also minimizes the, uh, the occurrence and the number of uh, tropical storms and hurricanes. Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. And I, I explain that. I, it's it, you know, not intuitive to people how something way out there in the Pacific Ocean affects hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. But that's, that's the story of meteorology, isn't it, Jan? Just all of these connections and uh, nonlinearities and things that we face and deal with. Well, yeah, and, and that sort of circles back around to the important point about, about El Nino. You have to look at it in the context of what's happening with, with everything going on um, around the globe, all these different indices, um, weather patterns, and those all work sometimes in, in conjunction with one another to make the impacts, for example, from an El Nino stronger, or sometimes they, they work to diminish the impacts. Yeah. And that's, that is one of, one of the big problems for um, short-term climate forecasters looking out for the next season or so is how, how those different uh, teleconnections will interact and uh, influence one another. And, and that's, I wanted to kind of touch on that since you bring it up, because one of the sort of, I consider frontier or sort of areas where forecasters are really focusing a lot of our energy is in this sub-seasonal or sort of short-term climate predictability. I mean, of course, there's a lot of talk, rightfully slow, about changing climate on longer-term longer term scales and whatnot. But there's a real effort now, and it has impacts for things like uh, agriculture and public health and national security and, and sub-seasonal or sort of short-term climate forecasting. And a lot of that, uh, the th- types of things that people at like the NOAA Climate Prediction Center or CPC does, is dependent upon this alphabet soup and, and understanding what's going on and who's canceling each other out at any given moment. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely correct, and it's you know it's not just CPC; it's other you know it's other agencies around the world, and I think they're still a ways away from having a, a good handle on it. You go back and you look at what you know the forecast versus what what occurred. There have been some real big misses in even in, in more recent years. Uh, saying, for example, California will have an above normal year and they have a below normal year. That has really significant impacts upon lots of um, areas of business, um, agriculture in, in California, and where you see those those big misses in the forecasts. Um, as, as I often say, you know, there's I've yet to see a long-range forecast that I would probably reach in my wallet and pull out a $10 bill for. Absolutely. That's a great point. I want to pivot now to another big rain producer for California other than El Nino. You've talked in the past that some of of California's most costly flood events were actually not associated with an active El Nino, but with something called atmospheric rivers. Tell us about atmospheric rivers. So atmospheric rivers are what those of us who've been been around for a couple of decades, uh, you know, at one time would have called a, a stalled cold front where you have a moist plume of, of, of air and would sit over one portion of typically the West Coast. That's where we have seen a lot of those. So we saw one a couple of years ago from Hurricane Joaquin off the, uh, off the Florida coast as well, where you tap into this, this stream of subtropical air and it sits over one spot for an extended period of time. Uh, there's more and more research. A lot of it being, being done by, 
down at um, UC San Diego is, is, is Scripps Oceanographic. Yeah, Marty so, Ralph, I know, is involved in quite a bit of that. We even did a little research and published a paper on atmospheric rivers affecting the southeast U.S. Yes. UGA. Yeah, and th- those are, th- those storms, I know in California, account for, you know, more, th- more than half the rainfall in, in any given year. So trying to get a better handle on those, what, you know, what sort of patterns lead to these really moist, juicy taps of, of, of rainfall coming into the state, which are typically when, when we see flooding. And as you said, not, not just in California, but also the southeast and other parts of the country. Any, anytime you sustain, sustain one pattern over an area for an extended period of time, you're going to have consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I want to read some statistics here. From July 1st, 2016 to June 30th, 2018, parts of California saw as much as 120 to 180 percent of average rainfall. And the Sierra Nevada struggled uh, to, to get uh, out from underneath uh, staggering amounts of snowfall. For example, Mammoth Mountain. Uh, new record, January snowfall of 245 inches, to, uh, over 20 feet of snow. Uh, was this an atmospheric at river on steroids or was this uh, an ongoing La Nina or a combination of both? It was primarily uh, the the overall pattern that set up on the, on, on the West Coast in, in the winter of 2016-17. So we sort of had a semi-permanent trough and we had a series of these atmospheric rivers came, sat for... 12, 24 hours, dumped lots of rain and snow, and moved on. There was actually somewhat marginalized flooding that year in that we had lots of events, but they were spread out over quite a, quite a few days. So that we were fortunate in that ways. But it, as you mentioned, Mammoth Mountain, lots of areas in the Sierra Nevada had record or near record rain and, and snowfall. And really, that's the the bank that's where we store our water for for most of California um, is in those is in those uh, areas of of snow and then the downstream reservoirs. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia talking with Jan Null today. And we're, we're diving into his areas of expertise and we're going to talk about his work on vehicular heat stroke and ch- children dying in cars momentarily. But I want to stay here with El Nino for one moment before we shift topics here because he's one of the top experts in the world. Make sure you visit his website as well uh, out there. Uh, this discussion of the linkage between El Nino and climate change. We, we, we know that climate is changing. There's natural change and there's a human uh, steroid or anthropogenic uh, forcing on top of that as well. What is the current thinking on the relationship between climate change and El Nino frequency or intensity? Or are we still kind of in a sort of a new ground there as far as research and understanding at this point? I, I think we're in somewhat new ground as far as the subtleties, but I, I think, you know, the, in, in a broad sense with, with warmer oceans, uh, 
and a warmer atmosphere. So the the effects of of El Nino are probably going to be kicked up somewhat. Um, and and every weather event, be it El Nino or you know even um, any event, is <clears throat> right now has some climate change DNA in it. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, it will be a while, it'll be a decade as we're starting to count up, well, how many more heat waves, how many more significant El Nino events have there been over the last 10, 20, 30 years than, than there were in, you know, in, in, in past decades. So it's going to be watching the trend line and then trying to predict where is that trend line going to go um, as we continue to see uh, anthropogenic warming in the atmosphere. I want to stay with the climate change topic for a second. So when we are in an El Nino year or years, uh, that tends to add to the sort of global temperature in terms of the sort of magnitude of the, the warming. Is, is that right? I, I'm particularly thinking, for example, of all of the hoopla over the so-called pause or the sort of period after 1998, when I know there was a pretty significant El Nino period in there as well. So is that the general rule of thumb that during El Nino, there's a, a bit of a boost on the background warming? Yeah, there there is though. It's not you know the the ninety eight was really the was really an outlier uh, in in some ways. We look at the the event in um, two thousand um, fifteen sixteen, which was as strong as ninety eight, and uh, it did not cause a pause. The the uh, the trend line has continued to go up. So. Again, we're still trying to figure out well why this time versus last time, and right. th- those that's is certainly one of the challenges that we're we're going to be looking um, at trying to solve going forward. La- last question about El Nino before we move over to the vehicle vehicular heat stroke. And this is a question that you may not ever actually even be able to answer this question because I struggle sometimes with it when a student asks me about it in class at the university. What you know, I, we know that there's sort of a two to seven year frequency on this sort of El, El Nino occurrence, the sort of Enzo oscillation that you know every two to seven years it happens. Do we have a good understanding, Jan, at this point of? I mean, what causes this sort of sort of cyclical or cyclical process, if you will? I mean, we I, I know it's related to this relaxation or sort of, of the trade winds and sort of the Kelvin and Kelvin wave in the ocean and the sort of ocean sloshing back and forth and shutting down upwelling and all of that. The physical mechanisms are I, I know the underpinnings, but do we have a good sense of what's driving the oscillation? I don't think we do yet. Uh, if I, I think if we did, we could probably have you know better forecasting abilities out on the seasonal basis. It again, it's tying together all these things that are going on in the uh, in the atmosphere. And what, is it is it the chicken or the egg sort of sort of uh, question? You know what what comes first? The uh, you know changes in the PDO is that going to you know get an El Nino going? Is it a impulse from the Manjulian Oscillation coming out of the Indian Ocean that's going to start pushing some of that water from the Western Pacific to the Eastern Pacific? Uh, combination of, of all those or again, the rest of the alphabet soup we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah, Weather Geeks listeners, if you're listening right now, make sure you tell other Weather Geeks listeners to tune into this particular episode because we are getting very weather geeky and I love it. We're talking all about the alphabet soup and processes related to meteorology and climate. This is this is tailor-made for what we want to do with Weather Geeks and we're talking with Jan Null. I want to now transition to your work that you've done on vehicular heat stroke and, and heat in general. I, you're very well known in this and I, I 
I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that here in 2018, here in mid to late August, you probably have a good idea of how many children have died in cars at, as of the 2018 year. Uh, it's a big problem. It's a problem that just gets at the heart of me as a parent uh, in terms of what's going on. And I have a colleague, Andy Grunstein, that you know as well that does work in this area too. What is heat stroke and why do people tend to underestimate it? Uh, heat stroke is basically when the um, the environment that a body is in causes the body to exceed its its normal threshold, and uh, that happens when when your core body temperature gets to be about one hundred and four degrees. The cases we're looking at with with kids and and sometimes adults, uh, especially the elderly who are in an, a very hot environment, um, they're not able to cool themselves. And uh, the symptoms of heat stroke, uh, one of those is that the body's cooling system actually shuts down. Uh, You stop perspiring. First responders, when they are called a a possible heat stroke case, they will look to see if the person is red and flushed but dry to the touch. And uh, that is because as a self-preservation uh, activity, the, the body stops perspiring and uh, that will co- then cause the, uh, the, the temperature will ultimately rise even further, sometimes leading to death. Uh, yes. And, and particularly as a problem, as, as you, you alluded to with children being left in cars, I want to, you know, I want to mention the, the heat, stra, heat wave in Europe in 2003 or 2004. I think one of the big issues there uh, was that the temperatures at night were not cooling down so much. And so it really exacerbated this notion of what you talked about with the bodies being able to kind of regulate or cool themselves down. So that's a particular danger when we have these extended heat waves, particularly when the minimum temperatures at night aren't aren't cooling down. And uh, so that, I, I think that's maybe less obvious than the danger of a child being locked in a car or left in a car. Uh, is there something that happened and or that got your attention that you started monitoring this sort of deaths uh, from children in cars? I know you have a website that tracks the number of deaths. What, well, first of all, what number are we at right now? And why did you start doing this? Sure. We're, we're sadly at 35 this year and we still have couple more months of warm weather across the United States. And one of the takeaways from my study that we'll talk about is that it doesn't have to be a particularly hot day. It doesn't need to be 90 or 100 degrees for these incidents to happen. Yeah, let's talk about, let's go ahead and dive right into what have you found over the years in your work in this area? Sure. Well, I first, I got got started in this back in 2001 after the death of a five-month-old in the San Francisco Bay Area, local media asked, asked me, well, how hot could have gotten in that car? And I go, well, I don't know, but someone's done a study. I, let me Google that and call you back. Well, <laughs> but nobody had really done anything very comprehensive up to that, that time. I found a couple of studies looking at, at a single day. They didn't match up with the circumstances. But that got my scientific curiosity peaked. I started keeping track of temperatures in my own vehicles that summer. Was really surprised at, number one, how rapidly temperatures rise, and number two, how hot they actually got inside vehicles. The following year, 2002, I did a controlled study, looked at 16 different days running from 72 to 96 degrees, uh, kept track with a remote thermometer setup of how hot it got in the car, uh, 
and then eventually worked with a couple ER doctors from Stanford. And in 2005, well, we published my work in the uh, um, Journal of the Academy of Pediatrics. And that's sort of what took off as my my shift in one of one of my focuses for research in working with advocacy groups and others in tracking these cases and trying to look at the circumstances, look at the look for patterns in, in, in what causes these. Yeah. And one of the things you alluded to is that you don't have to necessarily have these super hot days, 95 plus days. It can happen at uh, the danger level can happen at temperatures much less than that. And also there's some isn't it right that uh, it doesn't necessarily help as much to crack the windows? Is that a myth or is that true? That that is is totally true. Uh, I did a couple of the days that I did my testing. I, I did indeed crack the windows and it made a temperature difference of two or three degrees. But we're talking at temperatures inside a car, let's say on a typical 80-degree day, after an hour, you're at, at 120 degrees plus. And so moving it down to, you know, 118 or so um, does not increase significantly the, yeah, survival, right. the survivability. So th- that was certainly w- was one of, one of the myths. Uh, the, other, the other really interesting thing that, I, again, I noticed when I first started tracking these is... Much of the rise, 80% of the rise of the heat inside a car is in the first 30 minutes. The first 10 minutes, it goes up about um, 19 degrees. And and that's um, regardless of if you're starting at 72, if you're starting at 90 degrees, that delta or that change in the first 10 minutes is 19 degrees. Next 10 minutes goes up another 10 degrees. The next 10 minutes, it goes up another 5 degrees. So you're at th- you've raised the temperature from the outside air, temp- air temperature by 34 degrees in that first half hour. And, and is, is this just related to the greenhouse effect, Jan, in that you've got this solar insulation or energy from the sun essentially being trapped in, in, inside, this, uh, inside this car? Yes. Yeah, as you know, the atmosphere and windows are, are pretty transparent to the sun's energy, but they strike objects inside the car. Uh, a dashboard on an 80-degree day will exceed 180 degrees. Uh, steering wheels, the same. Seats, um, almost that hot. Those in turn... turn give off uh, long wave radiation and that is very efficient at heating up the air inside the car. It's a closed vessel that heat can't escape and it will build up very rapidly as we've talked about. And then plateau after an hour or so, 45 or 50 degrees above whatever the outside air temperature is. Wow. And many states have laws regarding pets being unattended, but not children. Yeah, it's uh, there are Close to 30 states have laws against leaving pets unattended in vehicles. There's only 21 states that have similar laws for leaving children unattended. And a handful of those are relatively ineffective laws. They allow you to to leave a child, for example, in Florida for 15 minutes before it becomes a uh, a, um, a crime in that state. 15 minutes on a 90 degree Florida day, um, you can already be at, at temperatures that could be could be fatal for a, especially an infant or small child. Yeah, as, as someone that attended uh, Florida State University in school in Florida, I, I agree with that the heat in Florida can be deadly very quickly. But there is some progress. There, there are now some good Samaritan laws that will protect people if they have to break into a car and, and see, a, see a child there. Is that right? 
Yes, more, more and more states. Uh, again, uh, some places are the order of about 20 states, 20 to 25 now. There are a number of laws that are sort of in the works. Uh, allow uh, a person to not face civil or criminal liability if they break into the car to to rescue a, a child. And frankly, though, even um, in states that do not have those laws and in tracking now, I've tracked over 700 deaths of children in cars. I've yet to see anyone prosecuting for being prosecuted for breaking into a car. Yeah, I would certainly hope not if a child's life is at stake. What uh, what can be done? I know uh, Andy Grunstein, one of his um, graduate students, Castle Williams, uh, has looked into sort of why this happens or who can it happen to? Because I actually think there are even, Castle's work found that there are even misperceptions on uh, who this can happen to. It's not any particular socioeconomic class or race or uh, it can happen to anyone. And is, is that your experience? Too, and if so, what can we do to raise awareness of this? Sure, yeah, it it, it can happen to anyone. It has happened. I mean, the looking at the um, the professions, the socioeconomic status of people that uh, have had a child die in, die in a hot car, it runs the full gamut from CEOs, hospital administrators, teachers, principals, lawyers, dentists, all the way down to unemployed or at least underemployed people. Um, and the probably probably the biggest common denominator is that people think it will never happen to th- to them. They will never forget a child in a car, and forgotten children account for about fifty four percent of the cases of the on average thirty seven cases a year across the United States. A little over half of those are accidentally forgotten. Another. Almost 30% are where a child will get into a car on their own. Car is unlocked in the driveway, on the street, the property surrounding. They might be looking for a quiet place. They might be hiding. They may then get locked themselves inside the car with those child safety locks in the back seat, or not for some other reason, not be able to get out. They may get overcome by the heat. And then another, the, the final 17% or so are where a parent or caregiver knowingly leaves a child in a vehicle while they go do another activity. Um, it might be the, to an appointment. It might be to go go to the racetrack or go gambling or meet up with someone else or to party. Um, again, there's a whole list of bad choices that these people have made. And yeah, I, that that second uh, example there. I had a good friend of mine uh, from Florida State University. Lives in the D.C. area now, and it was she had a situation where it was her. I think it was her son accidentally got into the car. I mean, she was right there. She was very attentive, but it was just one of these fancy child lock systems in the car, and they, they couldn't get it disengaged somehow. So she she went on the Weather Channel trying to raise people's awareness of that. So there are there are cases where you have very responsible parents like her, and you just have these you know sort of these fancy lock systems. I've even sort of seen even in my own car, I couldn't figure out how to get it unlocked in the back for my child one time. So, I mean, are there technological or sort of solutions or warning systems or apps that that can be developed or, or downloaded or, you know, just to help people out or just do, just, do we just need people to f- focus? I mean, I, I know that's easier said than done, but I mean, the castle is often even explored whether there are sort of technological solutions or ways that the car manufacturers can help. What are your thoughts? Sure. Yeah, there, there are lots of things going on on the technological point of view. I do want to circle back to children that get in cars. If you have a child who is missing, 
check the pool first and then check any vehicles. Those are two places where children can, you know, can can die, you know, in a matter of minutes. Yes. If, if they're hiding in the backyard or in the closet, they're in trouble, but but they're going to still be alive. Yes. So as, as far as technology, uh, there are lots of things being done. A number of car manufacturers now have backseat reminders that if uh, once you've closed the the, the back doors, when you get to your destination, you open the front door, you get a, a chime or a reminder on the dashboard. There's lots of apps. I know that Waze has added a child reminder sort of sort of app. Uh, lots of lots of different sorts of solutions out there. One of the, one of the issues, though, is overcoming that it, I would never forget my child situation. So do people get and employ employ these apps? There is currently some legislation in Congress to require car manufacturers to put in reminder systems. Uh, that's that's a great idea. It will save some lives, but it doesn't help that the percentage of children who get into cars on their own or those where parents knowingly leave a child in a car. And it would only be on new cars. There's such a long cycle for cars that before people get a new car, uh, so you have lots of used cars, you're only going to be, after 10 years, affecting about half the cases that we currently see. So technology is part of the answer. Education and awareness is certainly uh, just as big a part going forward. And that is where we're going to have to leave it today, Jan. I really have enjoyed this conversation. This has been one of the geekiest Weather Geeks podcasts <laughs> so far, and I loved it because it was very weather and climate geekery, and I love that. So I really thank you for joining us, Jan. Thank you for joining us, Jan Null, on Weather Geeks podcast. Mm-hmm.